0: Been doing some homework myself as well so it's okay now for an audio description listeners dave holds up his copy of halliwell's television guide it's uh, leslie halliwell and his co-writer philip purser
1: disagreeing with one another well that's always quite healthy um would I be right in thinking that it wasn't hard to disagree with Leslie Halliwell? Yeah, um, a man who would quite rightly possibly argue in a room on his own. <laughs> and anything made
0: after about 1947 is not worth seeing.
1: He wouldn't approve of Talking Pictures TV, because that would be too modern.
0: Oh no, he wouldn't like it at all. It has over 10,000 entries. Yeah, it's mostly him and Philip Purser are at odds with one another. Leslie Halliwell being very parsimonious with his star system as well to give you an idea of things which do warrant four stars but, you know i have to admire the breadth here the muppet show and <laughs> Head revisited
1: yes i can see that I'm, I'm surprised the muppet show didn't get five stars <laughs> i think the worst thing he, he says about most people and this is
0: um for most tv actors are just described as american general purpose actor which is a terrible thing to say about and And that's most of the performers in here are um, listed as general <laughs> purpose.
1: Of course, that's where the word Jeep comes from. So, <laughs> Yes, there you go, yeah. Right, hello and welcome to Rose Tinted Black and White Television. I'm Guy Morgan. My co-host is David Newell. This is where we swan through the television shows that flickered across the sets of the United Kingdom from 1956, the year of the Suez Crisis, to the three-day week, which ended in 1974. And actually, I've been listening to a little mini-series on the Rest is History podcast with Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook about the year 1974. And if you think things are bad now... I think I've still got them somewhere. I kept them as a as a sort of
0: keepsake petrol rationing coupons because there was the worry that nasty old OPEC were going to slam the brakes on oil
1: distribution
0: and was also that the year when we had power strikes
1: nearly everything struck but at different times so <laughs> well, was 1973 was the oil shock and, all right so- and so we went through that winter of discontent there were planned power cuts, but there were never sudden power cuts, according to Dominic Sandbrook. They happened elsewhere when the power workers went on strike. Oh, right. I I remember mum going out and
0: buying a load of candles and dad buying a load of batteries for the radio. And there of an evening, which was usually when the power would go out, by the glow of our gas fire and our candles, we would either read listen to the wireless, or God forbid, talk to one another.
1: Well, it brought families together, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, there were, there were enough rooms in the house for one for each of us. So for overseas listeners or people who are too young to remember, that's what we're talking about. The glorious 1970s, which wasn't all glam rock. And Arsenal will in the double. It wasn't all that. As a sporting decade,
0: it wasn't particularly great. Either. No, 1970 kind of went downhill after
1: that. Rather like adventure television. <laughs> what you decided we should be talking about on this occasion was reformatting. I mean, you're also talking about rebooting, but because there are several series that we can talk about in that golden age, which changed and evolved and sometimes shed their skin and turned into something miraculous it was probably best to describe it as changing the format it doesn't necessarily mean changing the length though obviously that happens but it can mean transitioning from one medium to another as in studio to film or something like
0: also I, i suppose is and if you remember guy we were we were taught this at film school about the difference between a series and a serial
1: yes, which is interesting because what would you call the prisoner
0: oh i don't know i don't know um um to, to, to give people an idea of, of of those differences is um series would would sometimes be primarily you would have um you know the same lead characters but you the, the episodes within themselves were primarily standalone um and there would not be a greater sense of of continuity or bigger story arc um or even character arc really in in one episode to the next whereas uh, um, a serial may have uh, a big overarching story even perhaps a little bit of a cliffhanger from one episode to the next and you know each of those formats you know were popular you know in their own way being able to drop into um, a TV series, much like we were talking about The Saint, is you can watch um, a Saint episode from the first series and you can watch uh, a Saint episode from the last series and, and not feel that you've missed out on a lot
1: in between. No, he hasn't really changed. He's slightly more possibly urbane and older. <laughs> Never yes, older,
0: older and more colourful because it's in colour. Going back to what you said before. I guess that's why something would sell very well over broad, because you could say, "Right, yeah, we'll have we'll have this series the same, but we only need ten episodes, or we only need a dozen episodes." Whereas a serial, it's like a big package deal, and you would need to buy, you know, the whole lot in order for the for the viewer to find it making any sense at all. Unless, of course, you go down the Jerry um, Anderson
1: route, where um, series just finish. I mean, this is partly the usefulness of a series which doesn't actually rely on any character journey um, Mm. or development. For a distribution network in the United States, or indeed the rather crazed patchwork that went for (laughs) ITV in the 1960s and 70s, they would show things at different times. And it's obviously inconceivable that people might not want to show every single available episode of the Avengers all in one go, networked. It would have been huge, actually. But what they did was they put them out piecemeal and in the wrong order.
0: Wouldn't really matter, would it?
1: So much like
0: um, as like Columbo um, is great because he barely references any previous cases. Um, even though sometimes there may be some similarity. In fact, in Robert Holt's case, it's always the same killer. But there's, there's not that aspect of self-referring you know, to other aspects of, of the series. And I suppose you know, if we look at something where we're meant to be wedded to all nine series of it, I suppose it would be something like The X-Files, where there is meant to be that resonance and that overarching story which they would occasionally dip into and would build up as as the series progressed but there would be enjoyable standalone episodes which were usually the more scary and entertaining
1: Indeed because really the nine series overarching story arc was very very creaky and it's a big ask <laughs> I think they fell over themselves trying to explain things and with continuity Now did you look up that thing called retconning, right? Wikipedia.
0: Retconning. Um, right. Um, first of all, because I'm doing this on my work laptop, I was a bit nervous about looking it up because it might show up on my word search. So, Guy, could you tell us a little bit what retconning is? Of course. That this may be broadcast before 9 p.m.
1: <laughs> a retconning isn't a character from Gone with the Wind. It's <laughs> apparently it's retrospective or active continuity it's got a whole page to itself on wikipedia and i don't think it's unfair for me to say that it's basically trying to explain away your continuity errors and mistakes from previous episodes ah, well, okay. okay
0: um because we, we know that there will be you know diehard fans of of tv series out there who will bring into question, you know, sometimes continuity or what they perceive as being uh, continuity errors, where uh, you know it might be referencing a very minor character um, or or something like that, and that idea of well, no, if you remember back in the first series, remember when they were talking about the fact that had he ever been to had he ever been abroad, he said he hadn't, but then in series two. He had those Spanish things in his house, so it's you know it's that idea of glossing over it and I suppose the biggest is around Doctor Who because when Doctor Who first rolled out and it was uh, you know kind of like the unexpected success it was, they realized that we we might have to start laying out a little bit of law l o r e as regarding this and and one of them was around the number of times a time lord can regenerate now that was written in the very naive black and white um bordering into color 1960s failing to project into the future ironically given that it's a time traveler um about the contrary nature of british
1: character actors
0: wanting to do 13 episodes and then move on to something better
1: yes and then you have to invent some waffle dust that will allow <laughs> Peter Capaldi to appear. And then... Uh, wasn't there John Hurt as a war doctor as well? That's right. I mean, that is the cl- classic retroactive continuity. Is It doesn't make any bloody sense at all. And the, <laughs> the, the ultimate expression of that is with Doctor Who, that when everything gets too much, they just reboot the entire universe. A bit like... Your wife having a dream while you're in the shower, <laughs> yes, yeah, I know, but that's that'd just be t v fantasy that would
0: <laughs> um, and I suppose they've done the same with the modern the modern Star trek films as well,
1: yes, because there's there's always a parallel universe handy, isn't there that yeah you can cross over into um, but returning to the British golden age, uh, there are many reasons for series evolving some of it can be a change of format or a change of production slash commissioning company Uh, a change in personnel on and off screen Um, Mm. possibly higher up or someone like Ian Hendry who just says I've done enough of this (laughs) I'm off and forcing a program to be reimagined on the fly really then there's competition, either domestic or overseas, and that can affect people. I mean, there is the where the Avengers was in colour was running into trouble. It was competing with the likes of Ronan Martin's Laughing on another network. And that had a direct impact on the kind of scripts they were writing. Also they were making Sly references, and actually not too sly, really, about Batman and uh, various other uh, TV shows. And then eventually, because they're up against Ronan Martin's life in in America, the Americans pull the money, the Avengers stops. In 1969, and of course that paves the way for the disastrous decade of the 1970s.
0: You do get series that um, also jump channel as well um ones that are are revived if you look um at the rag trade which is incredibly successful on the bbc and launched a young reg varney um upon the nation uh but when it came back songs reg varney um it was it was then on itv and revamped and i suppose a more modern kind of example um was men behaving badly which originally on ITV, and and they seemed disinterested in continuing with it, but the BBC picked it up with a bit of a change of cast.
1: Yes, I, I remember somebody, it could have been the great Nancy Banks Smith saying, beware Beryl Virtue marching up the drive with an unwanted <laughs> child <laughs> that she was going to force upon you. As it turned out, that was a stroke of genius, because she was the producer of Men Behaving Badly. And basically got the uh, BBC to adopt said unwanted child. Mm. And then you, you've also got those very strange series, which
0: in their first, um, you know, iteration are very, very successful. And then, much like Brigadoon, keep reappearing every now and again. And you wonder, is the audience from it the first time around? So we're looking at it. Oh right, oh yeah, I remember watching the original of this. Oh wow, this is good um and i suppose two big examples of that um are dragnet mm. which um really did sort of like appear every 10 years or so um, almost mythically on your tv and and one which is still going in various formats sometimes remaking the the originals the twilight zone
1: yes classic anthology series if you have brand recognition you might as well use that again and it's the same mm kind of format and there is another reason why things might get revived and uh, if you remember when we were chatting briefly to David Nobbs he explained why the legacy of Reggie Perrin came into being and that's because he needed the money (laughs) and uh, he had his own company and they said oh right he probably haven't really been turning a profit. what have you done that has been profitable? And he thought, oh, Reggie Perrin. But Leonard Rossiter's mm. is dead. How am I going to get around this? So assemble the old team. It was mm. a bit like Hamlet without the Prince, uh, I thought. Yes, we're talking about shows that were highly successful and then later get uh, rebooted, much in the same way as a lot of big screen Hollywood things looked back like the Adams Family. and they said, you know Because yeah. this is what producers at the time grew up with. But there have been, also in British television, less successful reboots of shows that were from um, the Golden Age. Uh, there was The Doctor series, which mm-hmm. then had the young junior doctors having achieved consultant status, and it wasn't great. It wasn't particularly well-received, didn't get many laughs, and that's because being a consultant isn't <laughs> great.
0: Yeah, it isn't particularly a comedy gold. No. Um, got Dr. Finley's case casebook, that's gone through a certain number of certain kind of, like,
1: iterations. But that's from uh, uh, an original novel, isn't it? Yes, yeah. So that, yeah. that's people revisiting that. There was an attempt to bring back the liver birds uh, yes which had also it wasn't so much retconning as Michelangelo's being polly james brother rather than elizabeth stenson's brother
0: was it done very imaginatively and just called the new liver birds
1: <laughs> i can't remember i think i blanked it out to be honest it's
0: um again i you know another extension of that is you know the likely lads and then you know, whatever happened to The Likely Lads.
1: Which is actually better than the original.
0: Yes, yeah, um, kind of big gap. And they also, with the with the colour series, got a chance to do their own feature film as well, which, bizarrely, was called The Likely Lads.
1: Well, you we have done small screen to big screen. So yes. people can look at the archive of our Irv uh, and check that one out. Uh,
0: but yes, I guess those, you know, those ones where, um, you know, a series is revived, like you said, you know, ones based on books, I suppose, you know, if you look at how BBC and ITV to a certain degree of mind the work of Charles Dickens, uh, maybe there's kind of like a big spinning wheel, which you're allowed to have a look at. And you know what? I don't think enough people choose Martin Chuzzlewit. with, really don't, really don't. It's And lots of it's set in America, so you can have loads of fun with it. You've got... You've got a Boston co-production there waiting to be put out
1: there. If I remember rightly, the American stuff Charles Dickens put in there for commercial reasons, but also because it had a very hard time in America and was (laughs) extremely unflattering.
0: (laughs) Yes, Kent comes off better in some of his other books, but those ones where you know we we revisit them like you said you know whether they're based upon books like just william i think it was it dennis waterman that naughty becapped schoolboy, um and then in the 70s it coming back and launching the career of bonnie langford and and again at about the same time a reboot featuring tony vogel with dick martin special agent with its incredibly catchy theme tune charles williams the devil's gallop
1: Yes, I mean, you couldn't do Dick Barton without that, could you? Talking about catchy theme tunes, let's start with a series that many people might know that had two catchy theme tunes. So, uh,
0: two? How'd they get away with that? Was one at the beginning and was one at the end?
1: No, one was on the first 39 half-hour episodes of ah. Danger Man. <laughs> Every government has its Secret Service branch. America, CIA, France, there's Bureau, England, MI5. NATO also has its own. A messy job? Well, that's when they usually call on me or someone like me. Oh, yes. My name is Drake. John Drake. Hombre secreto. And that was an ITC success. It didn't really get enough money from America for a second series but sold very well worldwide and was probably went into syndication in America. I came back with the idea two years later and it became instead of a commercial half hour became a commercial hour. Well I'll, I'll allow listeners to work out the different changes. This is the first series, and this is the accent that Special Agent John Drake employs. Professor Nadia Sandor, I am very intuitive. My extrasensory apparatus is highly developed and keenly sensitive to perceptions. That is why my jealous rivals call me the man with the built in crystal ball. A clumsily phrased tribute, but fully deserved. Also, I uh, happen to take a look at the file on your desk. And in The second series, we have the famous theme tune, which is called High Wire. Both of them written by Edwin Astley. And Drake's accent actually evolves within about four episodes. To this. Fair 34 until three days ago, a member of our embassy in Uruguay. <laughs> oh, by the way, sir, I'd like the opposition to know about this uh, weakness of mine as soon as possible. And as you can see, that's the one that we have come to know and expect from Patrick McGowan. Know a um, Leslie calliwell
0: says of Danger Man, gives it three stars, by the way, very generous. Crisp, sophisticated James Bondery with a star who had a clipped style all of his own.
1: That is certainly true, Uh, and if you want to see that style again and again, there's The Prisoner, and Ice Station Zebra. Yes, yes, all right, yes, very good. But he is kind of playing the same secret agent in that very abrupt clip style, though the guy in Ice Station Zebra isn't nearly as um, on the ball as John Drake or Number 6 would have been. That obviously made a huge difference because then you have to expand the plot. You have to put more stuff in it. It doesn't just sort of zip by. Things that we've seen before from the late 50s, like Interpol calling for just men, mm-hmm. they just crack on and you can tell an entire story and they make allusions, but you know they, they don't tend to have time to build up tension. But obviously, you can. if you've got a commercial hour, then you can break that up into a three-act story. Yeah. So it has an impact on story locations, um, the amount of cast members mm. that you might have. And that was hugely successful, and they were going to carry it on into a fourth series, which was going to be in colour, and after two of them... Patrick McEwen just said, I've had enough. do <laughs> something different. Yes. Uh, and indeed, The Prisoner was different, though hmm. he only wanted to make seven. And I think Lou Grade wanted 22, 24, something like that. And after coming up to, in the middle of the production of the 17th or something like that, uh, or early on, Patrick McGoo and just went to see Lou Grade and said, can't think of anything more. Um, <laughs> Out of things. And Lou Grade being a gentleman said, well, you've always been up front with me. Yeah, fine. And so that's why it left a lot of people confused, much in the same way as um, Devotees of Lost might have felt confused. Yes.
0: Yeah, because um, it is, it is. I mean, it is that, you know, that very odd aspect. And I think I might have mentioned this before and um um larry david being interviewed about like the early days of of seinfeld when you know he said i i was really clamoring and hoping that we'd get a series out of this i really really wanted a series that that was my prime objective i want a series out of this um and then when it did prove popular and they ordered like 22 episodes it was how on earth am i going to write 22 (laughs) episodes so it is that uh, um that that really difficult thing sometimes of Yes, we, we want this to be a, you know, a, um, to be a big success. Um, and then it is a big success. And then you realise, oh, but we're going to have to do all the legwork around it. And, and going back to what you said before, that idea of those structures, uh, for those of you with, with long memories, um, what used to be a very helpful guide um, when you used to watch a TV series in the 70s produced by a seemingly tireless quinn martin is that you would get a little intertitle to tell you that it was act one or act two or act three and then even an epilog mm. kind of like a nice up at the end you know for things like streets of san francisco or barnaby jones or canon or stuff like that um which which kind of just like all oh, right i know what bit of the
1: the episode i'm watching now it does make me wonder whether they actually farmed out different bits to different writers yes uh which is uh, quite possible particularly things like the epilogue which would have been rather like the tag scenes at the end of the avengers for example which police
0: squad yeah (laughs) where they freeze frame at the (laughs) end of police squad so even though there's been mass murder and mayhem and they just have a joke over a cup of coffee, but they freeze. But the camera carries on rolling, but they pretend to freeze.
1: And somebody um, is in the background still moving around. Yes,
0: But yeah, that, that idea of, of those um, standalone series or, or the fact that I'm going to have to watch the next episode or wait a minute, I haven't seen this for three weeks. Actually, that doesn't matter because it's it's going to be pretty much the same. And I remember this, oh, this is one of our old film school chums, um, Clive Dawson, when we were both working in Germany, and he was kind of negotiating, or his agent was negotiating, um, and he was the first writer on The Bill TV series to write a three-episode story. Right. Up until that point, Bill, they'd all been standalone episodes.
1: Yes, I mean, The Bill is very interesting, how it evolved in the, the 1990s because it, there were rules about the bill weren't there the-
0: yes you, you had to have a copper in every scene to start with it was half an hour then it was 25 minutes yeah it was you know self-contained um but you could balance it out with the uniformed officers because i think it stemmed from a one-off episode called wooden tops and then you would also balance that out with, with CID. And the idea is that you would you you'd sort of always feature one of those may take the lead on it. Um, and there would normally be like two running threads uh, through it rather than, you know, based around a central crime.
1: I like so many things in the 1990s uh, into 2000s. It all went a bit bonkers, didn't it? I mean, you had not just corrupt cops but corrupt cops that appear to be moriarty like masterminds <laughs> well, i suppose one of the things we have
0: to you know reflect back on of you know tv the 50s 60s and and, and 70s in one way we might view the fact that you're writing a piece of you know tv fiction an hour long cop show or anything like that and um, but it does take an incredible amount of skill to be able to play by those rules that you've got and, but yet still have the imagination to put together a really entertaining hour of TV. You know, we, it might be very easy to dismiss and say, well, there was only three channels at the time, or there's only two channels at the time, or there's only one channel at the time. Um, So people would watch it anyway, but it takes an enormous amount of skill um, to to concoct a one-hour piece of TV standalone that are going to, you know, really draw people in and then, you know, make them want to come back next week. I suppose it's like a big charity shop. You just think, well, this episode was really good. So, yeah, I think I'll have a bit of a rummage round and see what next week's is like. You know, going back to what you said before about anthology series, sometimes it would be, you know, a little bit hit and miss.
1: Oh, you Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected, then Tales of the Unexpected, because they ran out of Roald Dahl stories. But going back to the bill and its precursors, Talking Pictures TV have started showing all the surviving episodes of Dixon of Doc Green. So I thought.
0: There's not was... many of them. Well, not many.
1: Apparently, there's about just over 30 out of the 432 episodes. <laughs> Yikes! And of course, the one that they've got in their entirety is the very last one, where Jack Warner is virtually using a Zimmer frame.
0: Is he about 80? Well, late 70s, wasn't he?
1: I, think, he was doing he, that? I think he's in his 80s. He, they have taken him out of uniform and given him a civilian job as a collator. I'm not quite sure what that involves. Dixon and Doc Green is quite interesting because I thought... I started watching these on Talking Pictures Um, and actually the sort of stories that they're using um, about people who may be having psychiatric problems or they touch on a bent copper, apparently Paul Eddington, (laughs) I didn't recognise him, Uh, and George Dixon getting outraged by him having the uniform etc. That's only half an hour. And I've kept thinking, you know what, when I watched it, I'm sure it was longer than that. I'm sure it was about 50 minutes. So I went and did some digging. F- All right, okay. Not through IMDB completely, but I went looking that there are some TV schedules that are online that you can go back and see who was doing what. And I managed to track down the transition from half an hour to 40 minutes or 45 minutes. And it was 1961. It started 1961 as half an hour. If I'd had that book that you're waving at me, <laughs> it would have saved me a lot of time on the computer. Um, it, it Oh, by the way, uh, Dixon of dot Green gets
0: two stars and is described as stories of an ageing cop in London's East End.
1: I mean, he actually started the series as George Dixon at the age that the police normally retire. Um, But anyway, they decided it was so good and they needed more room to tell a particular story that in the autumn of 1961, they extended it. And um, that's obviously what I remember, but it's when you trawl through those schedules, you sort of think supercar. Do I remember supercar? I don't know. I would, I think that, I think in my cot I was just left in front of the television and absorbed all this stuff. And God, I did... can I ask a technical question here now, and maybe I might be asking something,
0: which may lead on to another episode. Yeah. To to another episode of this. Um, when we say about about changing formats or taking, um, the familiar that we know from a series, perhaps synthesizing all the good bits. Mm. Would we include series which which may be spin-offs, where a character, not necessarily a lead character, is taken and kind of like pumped up, increased in their sort of like popularity?
1: I mean, somebody um, like the pre-Dad's Army Arthur Lowe, who spun off from Coronation Street.
0: yes. Laverne and Shirley from Happy Days Rhoda or Frazier Yes, yeah, I suppose, yeah, a big success You know, it always seemed interesting, you know Is it is it one too many trips to the well Or are we extending something I mean, I always used to like Rhoda I always thought it was as funny as the Mary Tyler Moore show choosing, you know, who's gonna be your spin-off character.
1: And actually that's not the only spin-off from Mary Tyler Moore show because of course there was Lou Grant. Yeah, Lou Grouch, yes, as it was in Mad Magazine. Also, was there another one as
0: well? Because there was was it Boris Leachman's character? Possibly. I can't quite have that lady in in the Mary Tyler Moore show, kind of like spun off. I suppose what was what's quite interesting about Lou Grouch is that the series the resulting series um it was an hour or or 50 minutes and primarily it was actually you know quite a serious piece of tv with a lot of serious things and storylines to look at you know the responsibility of of journalism and i suppose spinning off the back of you know the breaking of the watergate scandal you know that idea of look, this is what happens when when sometimes journalists can really get it right.
1: The journalist is hero. Um, yeah, a lot of mileage in that. Well, back in those days, certainly. But, of course, Edward Asner believed that Lou Grant got cancelled because of his outspoken political views.
0: And he did have some outspoken political views. Um, apparently Charlton Heston accused him of having outspoken political views. That's rich. <laughs> Charlton Heston, normally so quiet. An uncontroversial, yeah, you know, come on, Chuck, that's a bit rich. You being head of the NRA.
1: Anyway, we're kind of uh, distracting ourselves from why shows might change. We talked about the bill. I know these are kind of outside our time frame, but actually one of the reasons why a series might struggle is uh, the death of its lead actor. Uh, and thinking of Taggart, which they managed to carry on by having a similar character come in. It remained Taggart, but I think because of commercial pressures, uh, perhaps production costs, instead of being a three-parter of commercial hours, which would mean that it's about two hours, 35, something like that in, mm. um, in length which allowed you to follow various red herrings and um, it would be quite entertaining and the characters were um, the family as it were was uh, very engaging and you were allowed to empathize with them then it got reduced to the Inspector Morse two-hour style thing which would have been take the ads out that's about one hour forty and you sort of think okay but it doesn't have the same depth and then they end up with it just being an hour, a commercial hour and so that's about 45 minutes and you're riding on the back of your the familiarity that you've got with the characters and they don't really have the opportunity to have the complexity of story that they they did before. So by restricting that amount of time you can reduce the quality of the storytelling and if you're not careful if you have something that is really quite tight and then you extend it that can get a bit soapy and padding as in the detectives
0: been showing that on on tp tv
1: that's right and they the half hour ones are much better because it's basically uh, it goes back to one of your previous things about rotating leads the somebody would step up to the fore and handle a particular case. Um, You would get Captain Matt Holbrook appearing, leading a squad of brave and tough detectives in a large unnamed city, uh, which is probably LA, to be honest. Leslie Halliwell describes it as clean, competent pop show. That's it. That's
0: all it says. One star, and interestingly, a little bit down the cast list, regular cast list,
1: Adam West. Adam West, who appeared in when the TV show transferred to NBC and became an hour, Mm. and he was kind of almost a hippie, actually. (laughs) Oh, no, fitted into the mod squad. uh, He was uh, somebody, a policeman, who read poetry in beat cafes. He was like the graham lasso of day <laughs> like graham lasso used to be in the english team and um, where he was always viewed with suspicion because he would usually be reading yes well instead of making bets uh, and <laughs> playing three-card brag with the detectives it started off with abc the american broadcasting company 1959 to 1961 they were commercial half hours american commercial half hours which meant they were even shorter But they were fairly tight. They featured a lead detective, pretty much uh, a different one each week. And then when they moved to the hour-long thing, they decided that they needed to round out the characters, which basically meant looking at their home life and soapifying the thing.
0: That's always that difficulty of, um, you know, if the case that they're investigating doesn't necessarily Kind of keep you entertained and glued that idea of let's have a look at you know people's home life or domestic situation um you know and if if you think back you know to watching hours of tv you know colombo you never saw his house um apart from in the terrible spin-off mrs colombo you never saw where kojak lived you never saw any of his relatives um apart from his real life brother um, in the series playing Stavros maybe you know our shift the focus has has been that we do want to see the psychology of these characters we do want to see those those bits of background um about them what's their house like and it's that odd thing of of sometimes taking something and I'm going back to the the Twilight Zone which again are being shown on TPTV or is it legend Sorry, it may be legend. Yes, I think it
1: it might be legend.
0: And if you look at it, you know, and they, they show them in the half hour slot. And you just go, you know what? This is so beautifully formed. Old Rod Serling died far too young, really knew how to put together a half hour of TV. You know, which was either going to entertain, which was going to shock and scare in some places, terrify even break your heart sometimes. You just go, wow, that's that's such an art, such a craft. And then you wonder sometimes whether it is from, you know, the big boardrooms to say, you know what, we love this so much. We love what you're doing, Rod. What we'd like you to do it is twice as good. So write them longer. Do it for an hour. And you just go, oh, well, I don't know, you know, because these half an hour, they really, really work quite well. And it really is one of those cases sometimes of less is more, or more is less.
1: Yes, well, you may well remember my oft-told story of when I took a BBC producer uh, around the Kit Kat factory in York. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. And there was this wonderful machine which wrapped the two-finger bars at a rate of 330 a minute. Oh. And the figures were mind-boggling. And she said, oh, this is the chocolate equivalent of casualty. (laughs) Needless to say that the project I was hoping to work with her on didn't take place. The The trouble with me is I'm too much of a craft chocolatier.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, you have one of those fancy chocolate places in Brighton,
1: Um, like
0: Doodle or whatever it's called.
1: So we've covered all the bases, I think probably because my knowledge base about The Avengers is, I think you could say, extensive. Um, When you talk about changing formats and the different reasons why you might want to do that, one of them we've mentioned is that your lead actor buggers off. Mm. And so, therefore, the sidekick, Patrick McNee, playing a certain John Steen, has to become the lead. Then you need somebody else, Sidney Newman who possibly with Lou Grade is the single biggest influence on popular television, how mm. I would say, in, in Britain, said, so why don't we have a female partner? And while they were waiting for Honor Blackman, they got rid of a few old scripts. They imported somebody else to basically play Dr. Keel, Doctor with a different name. Then you got Honor Blackman. We talked about continuity problems, she gets introduced in terms of the first time you see her, it says, oh yes, I like working with her, says Steed. And then about six episodes later, she doesn't know him um, because she's working at the British Museum. And you sort of think, mm, maybe there's a suggested running order somewhere on Wikipedia or uh, out on the web, which says, if you want this to make sense, then run them in this order, be much more rational. But then at the end of the studio, and we're talking about stuff that was recorded nearly live. Um, it was pretty much in one take. Uh, they'd have to kind of run round the back, get changed, and then it would be a different time period. People would be slightly out of breath or they'd just been in a fight and they were still shaking and, you know, close off the champagne glass. Um <laughs> Would be wobbling a bit. And then Anna Blackman wasn't interested in moving to film so they had to have a big rethink because film is a different beast. Ooh. Well the people making The Human Jungle didn't go to a third series so they were basically imported to make this work and of course you had people like Brian Clemens uh, who were already involved and been in right at the beginning. And then you get that move to the black and white uh, Avengers, The Town of No Return. The slight misstep of Elizabeth Shepherd being hired, filmed for one, and then fired. um, Or parted company, I think. And then Diana Rigg being imported. And that black and white series, I think, is the, the peak. Because when they transition to colour, I think there's a temptation, because there's American money involved, that they start to become slightly more surreal and jokey, and that is where the um, the influence of American shows like Batman come in. Uh, the Man from Uncle. There's, you know, there's there's lots of gadgets and stuff like that. And then when Dinoic leaves, the people at the very top producing the Avengers decided that it's all got a bit silly. Let's make it serious. But then the Americans decided that they wanted a say on casting Um, and so there were three people up and the Americans opted for the youngest of them which was Linda Thorson. The guy who'd taken over as producer because Clemens and Albert Fernall had been sacked. I'd only worked in studios and didn't really understand filming. I feel sorry for Philip Levine who'd been one of the writers before, because he was made script editor, but they basically sat two people and the producer was just taking on double work basically. Philip Levine couldn't get a straight answer out of him. Went down the corridor to see Brian Clemens who was writing on The Champions and eventually Brian Clemens said, you know, you should really be having this conversation with, with your producer. It became clear that things weren't working the new producer and Philip Levine got the elbow, and they invited Brian Clements back, and he said, well, "I'm not coming back if without Albert Fennel. And we want to run the entire show, and so that so they were then left with some stuff that had been shot that they weren't particularly happy with. Um, they didn't really know what. The relationship of Linda Thorson's character was with Steed. And to be honest, nobody did. The director didn't, and Linda Thorson hadn't been told either. Um, and so, in one of the greatest f- finessing bits of managing a change, Brian Clemens still had one episode on contract with Diana Rigg. So he, he could invite her back and they wrote the Forget-Me-Not, where they actually made sense of the changeover. And I forget where the Forget-Me-Not, I think that's the beginning of that um, second series, not the end of the the previous one. But it rounds off the relationship between Steed and Mrs. Peel, and starts a relationship between Steed and Tara King, and explains who the hell she is. And it helps Linda Thorson get the idea of who her character is. And given all the kind of... Problems because she's only about twenty-one when she uh, very young, yeah, she yeah. that's It's an incredible strength of character to actually withstand all of that and then carry on a series of about I think it's something like thirty episodes, some of which are uh, stand up as well as any of the uh, of the best episodes of the Avengers. So what you've got there is you've got changes in personnel in front of the screen and behind the screen. You've got people higher up making decisions about how they want to go and not really understanding what's made the show a success. And you've got the Americans saying, this is what we want to see. And we want someone who's blonde. Which explained why Linda Thorson apparently had to have her hair bleached and they relented when it started dropping out. And so she had to wear a blonde wig. Invasion of the Earthmen, which was actually on great TV only last week, um, uh-huh. Brian Clemens managed to explain why she kept changing hair colour and she swapped wigs um, around. Oh, really? um, yes. The only problem with ride? that, I think it was a termination script and mm-hmm. it meant that you had to leave out a couple of things which would have been interesting from the science fiction uh, point of view because you simply didn't have time they were either dropped at script stage or they were they were just edited out and then because right at the end as I said of the 60s the Avengers in the states wasn't doing particularly well uh, against Rona Martin's laugh in the Americans pulled the money and it's gone and the struggles of the new Avengers and trying to put together the money for that they just didn't have the heft in order to give it the same kind of um, potential that the original had had it does
0: say it does say in 1976 albert fennel and brian clemens who had been much involved with the production and writing of the old series put together the new avengers with Mcnee, assisted by joanna lumley and gareth hunt but the spark was fitful and the production was beset by financial problems
1: i couldn't have put it better myself There we go. That is why anyone who participates in the new Avengers only gets half an Avengers point. (laughs) There are
0: other television guides available,
1: I should point out as well. So that was Leslie Halliwell rather than Philip Purser who said that. Yes, yes, yeah. I think he's right on that score. It's a bit like Return of the Saint. Yeah. We've just talked about that before, Ian Ogilvie. Uh, does its best there's a lot more action but the action actually takes away from the character and you sort of think well i'd want more wry eyebrow raising myself but then, yes, it, yeah. but then it's the 70s so you know there wasn't any room for that guy just let you know and i'm doing a
0: quick search here on on amazon and you can get um leslie halliwell's um grumpy television companion um in paperback from as little as three pounds 41 or A used copy for 62p.
1: Oh, right. I thought you were going to say £62, in which case you'd be in the money. (laughs) There's also
0: a hardcover version, which features Joan Collins on the front, and that's only £3.41 as well. What a bargain. Couldn't get a coffee for that much. Unless, of course, you went to Greg's.
1: (laughs) So I think we can acknowledge, tinker with things at your peril. There's a lot of contributory factors. Yes, because if you start either taking away or... Adding too much to that house of cards, it will collapse. And I think probably on that shaky analogy. On that construction bombshell. We ought to wind up for uh, this particular episode. Remind
0: um, listeners um, that coming up soon, we will be, which we've hinted at um, previously, we will be looking at... um, serving stars or
1: is it locked up stars but potentially a bit of both because the fame school that was stalagluft free (laughs) yeah and one thing that i came across apparently there are some records that have just been released from uh both germany and are in the national archive office where people who had been prisoners of war had to fill in the questionnaire how was it for you Basically, oh, like a trip advisor review of its day, yes, including flight officer Donald Pleasance.
0: Oh, there you go. Um, who, who was actually a forger at his prison camp. It's true. Oh, no, wait a minute. No, that's the
1: great escape. That's the great escape. Um, I'm not sure he actually spent much time in a proper purpose built prison camp because he got shot down at the end of August. Uh, 1944 and because the Germans were in retreat they took their prisoners back with them and he Mm. wound up going back through Holland. Um, It was not a walk in the Black Forest uh, but as we know that there are um, this new exhibition contains the material about Peter Butterworth.
0: Yes, that was yeah. There was a featured news story um, only I think it was last week or the week before. Yeah, which was which was quite revelatory for his for his family.
1: Um, It was, and given that he was such a remarkably congenial, bumbling figure in Mm. his screen appearances, you think, really, that's what he did? Blimey. But uh, that is to come. And Uh, um,
0: and that will be, I think also, that might be one of our live sessions
1: as well, won't it? It will be, where we are actually in the same studio and not relying on technology. Anyway, Dave, thank you very much for that. I'm Guy Morgan. My co-host has been David Newell. You've been listening to Rose Tinted Black and White Television, where we've been discussing how certain programs from the golden age of British television between 1956 and 74 evolved and expanded, contracted, and the reasons why that might happen, because you can't change the laws of physics, Captain. So until next time, I thank you all.